Father, we thank you this morning. First, for the observance of the Lord's table. We thank you, Lord, for what it represents. The shedding of Christ's blood on the cross for our sins, the atoning sacrifice of Christ for our sins, and the giving of his body in bearing your wrath, your holy and just wrath against sin. For Lord, on the cross, on that great day that we just celebrated a weekend ago, the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday, for on that cross, Lord, holy justice was satisfied. Christ, as Paul said, and as 1 John says, became the propitiation for our sins. He became the atoning sacrifice, the appeasement of your wrath against sin. So, Lord, we thank you for partaking, remembering the death of Christ until he comes back. And Father, we pray this morning, just giving thanks to you. As the psalmist called us, as we just read in our responsive reading in Psalm 107, the psalmist called us to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for your wonderful works to the children of men, how you satisfy the longing soul and how you fill the hungry with goodness Lord we give thanks to you this morning one of the greatest sins is that of ingratitude because father we have so much to be grateful for we have so many people to be grateful to Lord we just thank you and we just praise you this morning for you are good you have been so good to us Lord in providing for us in protecting us, in keeping us from evil, in preserving us, perhaps from even death. Lord, you have been so good. But Lord, in our sin, in our, in our pride, we often think that uh, what we have and what we do and what we're able to do is because of something in us, something innate in us, something that we've done. We think, Lord, that it is because of our, our genius, our willpower. But, Lord, it is all because of you. It is all because of your goodness. It is all because of your grace, because it is your grace that empowers us by your spirit to do whatever we are called to do in this world. It is your spirit who who animates us, who wakes us up every day, who gives us life when we don't deserve it. It is your spirit who wakes us up, who energizes us, who, who propels us forward, who pushes us to, to persevere despite what we have to face every day. It is your spirit who teaches us your truth and applies your truth to our hearts as we hear it preached and as we read it. And as we listen to it, Lord, it is your spirit who applies your truth to our heart so that we may live by it. Lord, it is you who gives us the ability 
to work. And even if we're retired, Lord, it, it gives us the ability to move around and to, to have our being and to interact with others. And whether we're children, it, and it, it gives us the uh, propensity to, to go to school and to, to be stewards over the work that we're given and to do our work and to go to class and be obedient to our teachers and administrators. Lord, it is all by you. It all comes from your hands. You give us, as parents, the ability to provide for our families, for our children, and for our grandchildren. Lord, all thanks goes to you in light of that. As the psalmist cried out, Oh, that men will give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Lord, oh, that we, the living church, all of us as members, individual and collective, Oh, that we will give thanks to you, Lord, for your goodness and for your wonderful works to us. And, Lord, in doing that, may we sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and to declare your works with rejoicing. Go and, and, and tell people what you have done for us, ways that you have made for us. May we not be afraid to bear witness to your goodness to other people, especially to unbelievers, those who have rejected you. That is a way for us, Lord, to be witnesses to your goodness. To sit and tell people who will listen. Let me tell you what my God has done for me. Let me tell you how good my God is. And this God can be your God if you submit to him, if you, if you bow to him, if you confess him as Lord and Savior. This God can be your God. This God can be your Heavenly Father. This Christ can be your Lord and Savior. Lord, you're good, and we're called to spread your goodness to all. We pray this morning for the Lord that you continue to uh, heal her foot, her right foot, her toes that were broken. Just heal her and be with her, Lord, and also take away that desire to, to smoke that she's asked prayer for, Lord, that you give her the strength by your spirit, Lord, to... Uh, Put the cigarettes down. She has a desire uh, to do that. She's expressed it, Lord, and, and we pray that you do that for her. We pray for Phyllis, who's not with us today. She had to work. Lord, these jobs, of course, we know that they don't, the owners don't have a biblical worldview. They don't care about the Lord's day. They don't care about people spending time with their families. So, Lord, we pray for her that you be with her as she works today. We know she longs to be in church and fellowship with the saints. Lord, that the Holy Spirit may minister to her today. That you be with her, Lord. Help her to be a witness on her job. And Lord, we pray for her, her company that she works for. That you grant repentance to the owners. That they may become believers in you and, and treat their workers and employees as such. That they honor there are Christian employees who desire to, to be worshiping on the Lord's day rather than being at work. That you may bring repentance to them, to our owners, to whoever is in charge of making the schedule. Lord, you are mighty to do that. You are mighty to save to the utmost. So, Lord, just be with her today. 
Lord, we pray also for uh, our whole church family that you continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, grow us in our uh, affections for Christ and toward Christ and our affections toward one another as a family of believers that we may continue to love, honor, and serve each other that we disciple one another, that we encourage one another, that we pray for one another, and that we admonish one another as we see the day of Christ coming back approaching, that we may do it more and more. I thank you, Lord, so much for our church family, the ones that you have brought here and the ones whom you will bring here. Lord, we thank you for them. I love my church family. And I pray, Lord, that we reciprocate that love to each other Lord we pray for our sister churches Anderson Bible Grace Fellowship Christian Fellowship Redeemer also Mountain View Iron City Baptist First Baptist Lionville pray for all the faithful men leading our churches that we continue to labor in the gospel continue to preach Christ and him crucified continue to shepherd the flock of God with great oversight that we stand under the authority of the word and not over it that we love and serve the flock for the elders at all of our churches Lord that we continue to teach well our deacons that continue to serve the flock well I pray for all our congregants Lord that, that we, we, we grow that they grow together they love each other, that they pray for their pastors and their leaders, that they do their part in praying for the church and studying the sermons and, and uh, spreading the gospel and encouraging the faithful in their congregations. Lord, continue to do that work in all of us as sister churches. And Lord, we pray this morning for the preaching of the word as we open up this book of Esther. Where your name is not mentioned, but you are still there as we look at the doctrine of divine providence these next nine weeks. Lord, be with me as I preach this first chapter this morning. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, to preach this text well. And Father, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning. Show us your truth as we work from the sermon topic when God seems silent Lord we know that you never are Father be with us as we preach and as your word is heard and may what I say be pleasing to you and may it be your words and not mine in Christ's name I pray Amen Man we're in Esther the first chapter this is a new book As I said uh, earlier, I preached, last time I preached through the book of Esther was back in April and May and June of 2017. So it's been five years. And, you know, we have some new people here and also we have new insights into this doctrine of providence that we've learned since then. So my prayer of the next nine weeks is that we uh, learn more 
and appreciate the doctrine of divine providence and learn what it is and we'll reference it as we go through excuse me this book we're not going to do it all in one sermon as the illustration goes I'm not going to drain the swimming pool with a straw <laughs> so we're not going to just pour all this into you in uh, one sermon but this morning we're going to work from the first chapter but as we do we're going to look at an introduction to uh, this book we're going to read do an introduction get the background and the setting and then go from there so let's look at the first chapter Amen. Anybody had a chance to read the first chapter yet? I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> so we know for the next nine weeks we will be in the book of Esther. Uh, so this is how it begins. Well, before I, I, I uh, read, who's, who's read the book of Esther before? Anyone? Okay. Amen. Amen. So this will be a good, uh, good time to go through this book as we did with Ezra and Nehemiah. So it said, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus is his uh, Hebrew name, his Greek name is Xerxes, X E R X E S, or Xerxes I. So the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom which was in Susa or Shushan the citadel that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all of his officials and servants the powers of Persia and Medea the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when those days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the guard of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver cords and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the king was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. In other words, drink however much you want. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Artaxerxes, or King Xerxes rather, or Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so he was filling himself, he was tipsy, he commanded Mahuman, Vista, Urbana, Bigtha, 
Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. How dare she say no to me? Then the king said to the wise men, who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti had not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Medea will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus. And let the kings give her royal position to another who is better than she. In other words, one who is going to obey and not rebel. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great. That means it's going to take some time. All wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mamukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his people. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. Hope I did okay with my best animation of that. First question I want to ask and answer is, what is divine providence? I want to define it in practical and theological terms. Practical terms can be such as this. When I was in high school, I think I told you all before, uh, I was not a Christian. I was a very terrible kid. I got in trouble. Hayden and Jerry, your pastor was not a good kid in high school. I did things that I should not have done. I, I drank alcohol. I smoked cigarettes. You know, I did all these bad things with my friends hanging out, you know, being disobedient and all those things, getting in trouble, getting spankings and whoopings and beatings sometimes. And so I did all those things. 
I was a bad child. I was. If I had died when I was in those years, I would have died in my sins. But the hand of the Lord was still upon me during those times. I didn't know that. I could have died in my sins with some of the stupid things that I did when I was a child. Drinking and driving, among other things. I could have died of my sins. But the good hand of the Lord was upon me, and I didn't know it. I didn't know it at that time. God preserved me. He was still good to me, despite the fact that I didn't acknowledge him as Lord. That's a small example of the providence of God. That's just a practical observation about it. Providence is not, it, it, it wasn't because of luck. I wasn't lucky. It wasn't because of chance. It wasn't because of, of fate. It wasn't because of coincidence. It wasn't because of good karma. All those things are unbiblical. Luck, fate, chance, coincidence, karma, happenstance. All of those words come from Eastern mysticism, religion godless religions you hear people use the word lucky all the time oh I was lucky it was because of good luck oh I'm having bad luck today I'm just having bad luck all day I hear people say that at work sometimes oh, this is, today is not my what lucky day you hear people say that or something bad happens to you say man it must be karma or fate, how you meet someone. Like it is in, you know, the old romantic comedies, a uh, uh, girl meets guy in the in the produce section of the grocery store, and they, they both drop their fruit at the same time, and they both bend down and hit each other's heads and have a little laughing moment, and then they look at each other, and they're star-crossed, and next thing you know, they're going out on their first date. They call that fate. All those concepts, coincidence, Nothing happens by coincidence. Nothing happens at random. There's no such thing as things randomly happen. Because what those words do is take away the fact that someone is in control of all that happens in your life. That somehow things just happen to just fall in place. They just happen because they happen. That takes God out of the equation that is a heretical view of God that somehow God created the world and just stepped away from the world and just let everything just fall into place as it did but providence is not that in theological terms uh, divine providence here from my commentary that I have on Esther is God's superintendence or preservation of man 
It is the fact that all things happen at God's hand. That God causes all things to happen. Superintendence means God is, is, is over. He, he supervises everything that happens in our life. That's what we think about when we think about divine providence. That God is superintending our lives. He is organizing all the events and affairs of our life. I talk about it all the time when we think about our church. How you all and others came to become members of our church. All of it happened by providence. You met this person who knew this person. This person said, hey, go check out our church. I think about how I met my wife at Alabama State University. I was working in the library. I was doing, you know, work study. My work study job was on the first floor at the circulation desk. And she was on the third floor. Had I not gone to Alabama State, I wouldn't I would not have met my wife. Had I stayed in the military uh, four years instead of two years, I would have never met her. Or had I gone straight to college and not to the military, I would have graduated college before she even made it to college. And I would have never met her. But it was totally providential that I went to the military when I did and she graduated from high school where she did and we worked in the library at the time that we did. That was all God. Luck had nothing to do with that. Chance had nothing to do with that. Fate had nothing to do with that. Coincidence had nothing to do with that. That was God superintending both of our lives, all of our circumstances. Good or bad. That is how it works. And that is, in a nutshell, properties. We're going to talk about it more and more as we go throughout this uh, book. But providence is present in all of, especially the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is filled with uh, historical narratives. And it says here that providence is taught largely by illustrations. Because Israel's understanding of divine providence grew out of its experiences. God's providence is, is seen in the stories of Abraham, the other ancestors, you know, Isaac, Jacob, the judges, kings, and the whole nation. Israel remembered God's marvelous deeds in the Exodus and wilderness wanderings as paradigms of God's providence in caring for and directing his people in every circumstance think about this if you know the story you should of the life of Joseph which begins in uh, Genesis 37 all the way through the end of the chapter Joseph's life is a story in providence Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers they dug a pit for him and dumped him into it hoping that uh, he would be killed and some travelers, I think the Midianites, travelers came by and picked him up and, and took him to uh, Egypt to Pharaoh. He became a, a slave in, in Pharaoh's house and, and God's favor was on him. And uh, Pharaoh put him in charge 
ultimately. But first of all, he was in prison for 13 years for something he didn't do because the wife of his his uh, his boss lied and said that he tried to rape her when he didn't. And so he got thrown in prison for 13 years. And guess what? While he was in prison, there were two other men that were in prison with him. One was a, I think, a baker. There was two men. I know one, one was a baker. Okay? And they had dreams, and Joseph interpreted their dreams for them. So when they were released, they went to their pharaoh, and the pharaoh had a dream about the, the famine that was going to happen. And he asked those two men if they could interpret his dream. They said, hey, we know somebody. We met this man in, in, in prison. And that man was Joseph. And Joseph went before the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gave him that dream about the skinny cows and the fat cows, you know. And that dream was about seven years of, of feast followed by seven years of famine. And right then, that king, Pharaoh, raised up Joseph to be his prime minister, second in the kingdom only to him. It was providential that those two men were in jail with Joseph and that he interpreted their dreams and that they told Pharaoh some years later about him and then guess what happened? He ended up being lifted up out of prison. That was providence. And it is shown throughout all of scripture. And so when we look at this passage this morning and the rest of this book, we're going to see the hand of God, although he seems silent. The fascinating thing about the book of Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the book. You don't see it anywhere. It is the only book in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. Now, the events in Esther took place between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Esther. That's when the events in, uh, I'm sorry, the book of Ezra. That's when those events took place. Between chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Ezra. And this was a period in history around 539 uh, B.C. Because Ahasuerus ruled from 486 to 465. And remember, B.C. years counted backwards. They didn't count forward. They counted down to zero. So he reigned from 486 to 465. So he reigned for around 21 years. And the uh, events in Esther covered 483 through 473 B.C. So around a 10-year a period. And the events in this book occur between the time span of the first return of the Jews and the second return uh, in the books of Ezra, between chapters 7 and 10. That's when the events in this place, in this book, took place. And this book also, the, the difference with this book is the fact that it covers the life of Israel under foreign powers and how these powers try to eliminate the Jewish people. And we're going to see that uh, later on in this book. And it covers how God sovereignly and providentially preserved his people in accordance with the covenant promise that he made to Abraham 
centuries before. So that is what we're going to see in this book also. God providentially preserving his people. That is what we're going to see. And then the Feast of Purim at the end is a celebration of the nation's uh, survival that we will see also. So, I'm going to answer, ask and answer a few questions and then we're going to get into our main principles for this passage. Number one, what is the author's purpose of this book? What is the purpose? The purpose of this book, the author's purpose, is to show that the hidden hand of God is still active in the lives of his people and that they are to respond to it in faith. That is the purpose of this book, to show the hidden hand of God that although God's name is not there, he is still active. And what we must know is that God is always active, even when it seems like he's not. He's always active. He's always active in our lives. We live in an, in an age where we like excitement. We like things to never be boring. That word, that dreaded word that this generation uses, boring. I was having a discussion with a teenager yesterday about that word, boring. That job looks boring. Like, everything has to be, what, exciting, and that's not real life, is it, adults? There's a certain mundaneness to life, but that doesn't make life any uh, worth less. Even in those mundane moments, those non-exciting moments, guess what? God is still at work in our lives. We're not going to always see his hand. But when you look over the years, look over the last one year, look over the last two years, look over the last five years, look over the last ten years, you can see the hand of God at work in your life. Can't you? You can see it. So that's the purpose of this book. A one sentence message of the whole book. And how this chapter fits into it. God is actively involved in all human affairs in order to accomplish his sovereign providential plan of redemption to his glory. That's a one sentence message of the whole book. And how this chapter fits with it. God is actively involved in all human affairs in order to accomplish. God is always accomplishing something in order to accomplish his sovereign providential plan of redemption to his glory. He is always at work, friends. Always. Always accomplishing his plan. Number three. Uh, what values does the book of Esther have for Christians today? Good question. It's an old book. It's over 2,500 years before our time. What, 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 what can I learn? My 21st century mind, what can I learn? What values does this book have for us as Christians today? Three values. Number one, the providence of God. 
that God superintendents, God superintends, and he preserves all creatures for his divine initiative. That all things happen at God's hand. That's a value that we can learn from this book for today. This book is not outdated and antiquated. No. God's hand of providence is still with us. God is still at work in our lives. All things happen at God's hand. Number two, we have human responsibility under that. Esther and Mordecai, we'll see that in them. Esther and Mordecai show great initiative and courage. And their actions change the course of history for the Jewish people. We're going to see that. Human responsibility is a great value that we will see in this book. And the third value we'll see is the total depravity of man. Because Xerxes and Haman, they embodied evil. Ahasuerus, I'll use those names interchangeably, Ahasuerus and Xerxes, because they're the same person. Remember, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. Xerxes is the Greek name. Ahasuerus was prideful and very arrogant. And Haman conspired to exterminate the Jews. He was an anti-Semite. He hated the Jewish people. He wanted them gone. He wanted them wiped off the face of the earth. So we're going to see evil embodied in two ways. Through pride and through arrogance and also through hatred. You may not know this newsflash, but pride is evil too. And lastly, what does God want to accomplish through the author? This is long, but you can truncate this, make it shorter. God wants to accomplish what? To assert that despite the apparent hidden nature of God, he is working his purpose out. That God is presently active in this world. He works with human behavior and responses to him. He protects and saves his people. His people can celebrate. He causes people to faith in him. And these are the principles that we're going to explore as we go through this book. We'll go through all these principles. That God is presently active in this world. The question is, do you believe this? Do you believe, Christian, that God is presently active in this world? In spite of all that's going on around us, is God still active? God is active. He is still on his throne. He will not be dethroned or deposed. No one can take his place. And we see that thing played out in this book. So observations on the text and exposition of it. We see the historical setting and the world it represents. Looking at verses 1 and 2. Came to pass in the day of Ahasuerus. He reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. Again, as I said earlier, uh, Xerxes was his Greek name, and his name means he rules over man or he rules over heroes. That's what Xerxes means. He is the son of uh, Darius or Darius the first. So he was the son of another emperor who came before him, and we'll look at that in a second here. 
He ruled between 485, and I said this earlier, and, and 465 B.C. And he was known for desiring excessive glory. So he was a child who always wanted everything. We would call him extra. He was that little petulant child who wanted everything. He wanted all the glory. He wanted all the attention. He wanted all the, the fast things, the, the things that bring attention. He, he wanted all that. But this is the setting that we're looking at. His residence is in Susa. Some translations say Shushan, which is the same thing. Uh, Susa was the capital or the citadel. The word citadel means capital. That's, that's, that's all it means. Susa was the capital where the Persian kings took residence during the winter months. So it had a winter residence and then it had a summer residence. So during the winter months, the king took residence in Susa. And this is where their edicts were written. In other words, their edicts were, were basically laws or sayings. And whatever the king said, that's what everybody had to do. And Susa was the best among the four capitals used by the Persian rulers. And, and Persia is in modern-day Iran. If you look at a map of the Middle East, uh, Persia, those who are Iranians and Iraqis, they're, uh, they're Persian. The man that owns uh, on time fashion uh, down here, it's, a, it's a, a family of brothers that owns a lot of them across the nation. They're Persian. They're Middle Easterners. They're native Persians. And Persia is the modern day uh, southwest Iran. And so this passage, this, these beginning chapters sum up the success and pleasure the king enjoyed. He sat on the throne of his kingdom. He ruled over 127 provinces. That's a province is like a state or a country, rather. That's a very vast kingdom from, from India all the way down the coast of East Africa to Ethiopia. That was a very vast kingdom. Very vast. And then you have the kingdom word here. And we have to understand world history to understand where we are in this point in history. When you look at the history of Israel, you begin to see Israel as a kingdom. You had also other nations like the, all the Ites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Moabites, the Amorites, all those Ites eventually over time became part of kingdoms. As those lands were conquered, kingdoms were established. For instance, in biblical history, uh, the, the uh, history is the Bible, and the Bible is history. You had the Assyrian kingdom led by Shalmaneser I. He came in and took the northern kingdom into exile in 722 B.C. That was the Assyrians under Shalmaneser I. And the Assyrian was the Assyrian kingdom was a big kingdom. Then the Assyrians were conquered by the Egyptians. So the Egyptians came in and established their kingdom. 
And then after the Egyptian kingdom was established, the Babylonians came in. And that's where we see Nebuchadnezzar. He was the ruler of the Babylonians at the time of the exile of uh, Israel, of, Ju of Judah, the southern kingdom. When the Babylonians came in in 586 B.C. and took Judah into captivity, basically into their territory. So you had the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, and you find that in the book of Daniel. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar, and then after Nebuchadnezzar, it was King Darius or Darius. Darius came in with the uh, Persians. The Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians under Darius, Darius the first. And then after the Persian kingdom, then you had the Medes, M-E-D-E-S. Uh, some people say Medes. The, the, the Medes kingdom came in. And that became the Medo-Persian Empire. That's where we get the word Medea from. Not Media, uh, like small M, but capital M, Medea, is where the Medes came from. So you had the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks came in and ushered in the Greek Empire. And then after so many years, in the first century A.D., you had the Roman Empire, which is during the days of Christ and the first apostles of the church. So you had all these succession of kingdoms over the last eight centuries of the B.C. period before Christ, and then the first century A.D., which culminated in the Roman Empire. And you had empires after that. You had empire after empire after empire. And those empires got larger, smaller, larger, smaller, larger, larger, so forth and so on. That's how war history was during that time. You had a succession of empires. And so this empire that we find in the book of Esther is under uh, Ahasuerus. And this is under the Persian Empire at this time. So that's setting the context and the world that we're, we're living in. So next we have in this passage the royal banquet, which covers uh, verses 3 through 9. The theme of feasting begins and ends in this book, as well as in the center of this story in chapters 5 through 7. So uh, this, these verses here introduce the theme of feasting. Because the word feast appears 20 times in this book because kings were always having feasts. They were always feeding people. So first we see a banquet for his officials in verses 3 through 4. So look at those verses. It says here, and listen to the language here, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. Why? Because he is what? He's king. He's ruler. Listen to see if you hear biblical language here in uh, verse 4. I'm sure you will reserve for someone else. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. What, what language do you see in there that should only be ascribed to God? the riches of his glorious kingdom 
and the excellent majesty. The splendor of his excellent majesty. Those are words that are designed for one king and one king alone, and that is God. Whose kingdom is glorious? God's kingdom. Whose kingdom is rich in glory? Whose kingdom has splendor of uh, excellent majesty? Only God's kingdom does. Not the kingdom of some frail, evil man that is a, is a wither who's going to be here today and going tomorrow. But that shows you the arrogance and pride of man and the arrogance of, and pride of Ahasuerus that he thinks that his kingdom is the glorious kingdom, that his kingdom has all the splendor and majesty, so much that he showed it off for a half a year. He showed all his other rulers, all the nobles, all the, the princes of all 120-something of his, his territories. He showed all of them the splendor of this one man's kingdom. If that's not pride and arrogance, I don't know what is. Then he has a banquet for the people. So the banquet for the officials lasted 180 days. Then he gets to us peasants. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people <laughs> who were present in Susa, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the palace. And that's only for those who could actually make it. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance. According to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of the household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So here you have the banquet for the people. It had only lasted, what, seven little days. He wanted to show off his kingdom to all the leaders, all the bigwigs, all the dignitaries before the common people it wasn't that much but it shows again the splendor of the garden of the palace you have white and blue linen fastened with coarse of fine linen now let me tell you about this linen linen was very expensive during this period in antiquity Linens that had to be dyed, you know, because linen is naturally white because it comes from cotton. But cotton is not naturally white. It has to be bleached. But you had to use cotton to make linen. So this linen had to be dyed blue. Dyes were very expensive during this time. You know, the most, most expensive dye was the purple dye because the color purple represented royalty. The color purple represented royalty. So you had the white and blue curtains. And then you had the purple linen on silver rods and marble pillars. Marble is very, it's even expensive now. 
if you got marble countertops in your home, that's like, wow, that's going to send the value of your house up twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 just by the marble. You know, some people are so rich, they got marble floors. That marble has to be made out of a quarry, dug up and sent to a marble manufacturer plant that, that makes it. It has to be laid down delicately in, in, in slabs. Marble is very expensive. It's very heavy. It's very ornate. It's very hard and difficult to fashion into something, but they had marble pillars. And then look at the couches. The couches were gold and silver. Gold and silver were very costly commodities back then. And a mosaic pavement. Mosaic means basically many colors. Alabaster. Alabaster is very expensive. Turquoise. And then white and black marble. You have to dye this marble black. That's, that's expensive. He's just showing off the splendor doing his banquet. And then to top it off, they had gold cups to drink the wine out of. And it wasn't just regular wine. It was royal wine. <laughs> okay, I'm sure it was of the highest quality. The, 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 the king didn't drink wine like everybody else did. I don't drink wine, so I'm, I, I'm sure I've been told that there are different qualities of wine. But they drank the best wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. And then the officers could drink as, as much as they wanted to, and the people didn't have to drink it; they didn't want to. They could drink as much or as little as they wanted. That was the, the celebration. All this in celebrating his kingdom. And then the third part of this, you have the banquet of Vashti. Just as a footnote, the name Vashti means beautiful woman. So Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to the king. You notice that's almost served like a footnote. But it's significant to the plot in the story. So that's what happened at the royal banquet. So now we get down to the demise of Vashti in verses 10 through 20. So what was going on? The king's heart was married with wine. We see that in verse 10. So the king was probably drunk, inebriated, tipsy, whatever you want to call it. He wasn't in his right mind. He wanted to show off his queen, his wife. Now I'll tell you this. Kings during that time had what we call harems. Harems are just a bunch of women that lived in the palace. That's what kings had back then. The queen Vashti was his wife. He had his wife, then he had a bunch of other women. Just like Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines, that was a harem of women. Of course, you know, that was an abomination to the Lord. It took his heart away from God as we saw in uh, read in 1 Kings 11. But these kings had harems of women. They had many women to quote choose from they had harems but Vashti was his wife so he wanted to bring her before him to show her off to the other men in the provinces but it says in verse 12 she refused she refused 
the king was drunk and he made a poor decision he made a poor decision you know the bible says in proverbs 20 and 1 about drunkenness it says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise now the bible i'll say this the bible does not condemn drinking alcohol the bible condemns drunkenness but at the same time many people make decisions why they're full of alcohol and those turn out to be the worst ones because it's a drug it's a depressant it depresses your brain function it slows you down your voice begins to drag your thinking is not as sharp and so that was the king's mistake he made a decision when drunk and these poor this poor decision foreshadowed uh, a future event that we will see but the writing proverbs tells us that wine is a market strong drink is a brawler the writer in proverbs also says in proverbs 21 and 7 the violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice And then Proverbs 31, 4 through 5 says this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, not for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. That's why this is not good. The king was feeling himself and what did he do? He began to make a decision because the queen did not want to show herself in front of his men. And make no mistake about it, nudity was involved in this, in her showing off herself to these men. She refused to come at the king's command, as it says here, brought by his eunuchs. And so the king was furious. He was already drunk, and now he's drunk and mad. And this sets up the rest of the book. This is going to foreshadow something that happens later in the book. Now, the eunuchs were supervisors. They were his supervisors, and the eunuchs were castrated men. That's what they were. That's what a eunuch is anyway, but in uh, ancient history, they had castrated men who who were uh, supervisors and they watched over the harems of women why because they were castrated they couldn't do anything to those women so the eunuchs were always in charge of watching over the harems of women for the king and when the king summoned for a woman the eunuch would go and get her and say hey the king wishes to, to see you so they did the same thing with Vashti but she did not come so what did the king do in his drunkenness he sought the wise men those seven closest to him and he asked them what shall we do to Vashti here in verse 15 and so Mamukin gives his counsel in verse 16 
she not only wronged the king, but also the princes and all the people who are in the province. So what he was saying, <coughs> that word was going to get around that if the queen dishonored the king, then what are all the other women going to do? They're going to be bold enough to dishonor and disobey their husbands. So they thought, they felt that she was setting a bad example. They don't want Vashti, the queen, to be an example to the other women. So that's why Mamukin said, do what? Get rid of her. That she shall no more come before King Ahasuerus. That rather the king should give her royal position to someone who is better. And so the king made a decree. Now about decrees, whenever the king made a decree, it could not be overturned. It could not be overturned at all. Which leads to our fourth point here. The king is pleased. So what's the fallout? The king had to do something because of the societal pressure that he felt from his rebellious wife. So the king had to do something. He had to save face because his queen, his wife, had embarrassed him in front of all these men. So he heard Mamukin's counsel and he had to do something. So here in verse 21, the reply, the reply rather, pleased the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. And that was that the queen should not appear before him anymore. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces in their own script, in their own language, that every man should be what? Master of his own house. And remember, this should not be altered. Whatever the king said, that's what happened. This edict that he had to put out, this letter, exposed Ahasuerus as a weak man. It, it exposed a weakness in his home that he could not control his wife. That's basically, um, this, is, this is how they, they were thinking. Now, I'm not saying that's right because it's not, but that's what, that's the message that was sent out, that this man couldn't control his wife. So what did he had to do? He had to issue an edict because he had to save face because of his pride and his arrogance. And he did it at the expense of his wife. So let's look at some theological applications and implications. Number one, how is God working his purpose out? We see it because God is setting up through providence future events that's going to happen with the king and his behavior, his, 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 his drunkenness, his pride, and his arrogance. We see that in contrast, that this is setting things up for what's going to happen later on in the book. He's working his purpose out. He worked his purpose out by getting rid of who? Vashti. And bringing in someone better. Who is that better going to be? Esther. See how God works things out? He works through the rebellion of Vashti. And we're going to talk about that in the third part. 
How is God presently active in the world in this chapter? Again, the preservation of God's people is beginning to take shape in this very first chapter because God is going to use the folly of this king in order to do that. God's going to use his pride against him. He's going to use it against them. Which leads to the third point. How is God working with human behavior? In response to him, he's working with the king's behavior, his pride, his arrogance. He's going to also work with Haman's pride and his arrogance and his hatred. He worked with Vashti's behavior in rebelling against her husband and refusing to appear because she was deposed. She was taken down from being the queen. So he's working through her behavior also. So that who may come in? Esther. Because guess what? Has she complied? We wouldn't need Esther, would we? We wouldn't either. We would still have Vashti. But God had a purpose for Esther. And when we read about her in the next few chapters, we're going to see where she came from and how God was using her to work his purpose out. So, in the end, applications here. Trust that God is working on his purpose in your life for his glory. I can't say that enough. Trust where you are right now. Trust God where you are right now. Where you are right now in your life is where God wants you to be. Where you are right now in your life is where God wants you to be. Circumstances, time, place is where God wants you to be right now. Trust that all events in your life are in God's hands. We have to know that our days and times are in his hands. Again, look back over your life. See how the hand of God has been with you, as I said earlier. All events in your life are in God's hands, all of them. There's not a single thing that happens in your life, friend, where, where God is, hasn't been there. There's not a time where God's not with you. And there's not a time where God's hand's not on you. There never will be a time. He will always be there. He can't not be there. <laughs> okay. Trust that God works through human agents to accomplish his will. Think about our jobs. God works through our supervisors, our bosses, our ungodly bosses, our ungodly supervisors, our ungodly co-workers. God works through them to accomplish his will in our life. Because after all, we're working for the approval of God. We're not working for the approval of man. Paul reminds us of that in Colossians 3, 20 through 25. I'll always, you know, hey, encourage people, read and pray through those verses before you go to work and watch God move. Watch God 
give you a different mindset, a different outlook on work and what it means to work for his glory and not for the glory of man. Have a biblical worldview. Don't look to be encouraged by your co-workers. Encourage your co-workers. Don't look to be encouraged by your boss. Guess what? Encourage your boss. I remember when I was working at UPS, uh, what, 2016, 2017, 18, and, um, you know, when those new new people came in to work, uh, you know, one of them was across the belt for me, a girl named Haley. And I tell Haley, I said, Haley, if you're looking to be approved on this job, you need to quit today. If you're looking for somebody to tell you, thanks, good job, you're doing such a good job, uh, if you if you if you have uh, a need for affirmation, you're not going to get it here. No one's going to tell you thank you, but they're going to tell you when you had missed loads. They're going to tell you the driver going to fuss at you if you don't put the packages right on his truck or put them in the right place. I say you're not going to hear anybody say thank you. But what I did. I was encouraging my fellow co-workers. I was telling them, good job. Not because I'm anything special, but I just said, okay, God, I'm not going to get encouragement from my supervisors, but why don't I encourage my co-workers instead? And they appreciate that when you do that. Encourage your co-workers, Christian. Tell them, good job. Tell them you appreciate what they do for the company or for the school or for the workplace. That's how God can work through us to accomplish his will. I think about Joseph. Genesis 50 and around verse 19. He told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What his brothers meant for evil by putting him into slavery. God ultimately meant for what? For good, for the good of Israel, for the preservation of Israel. That's how God works. And the last one I want to read here as we close, Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Listen to this. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall not shall stand rather, and I will do all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. That is God. God purposes it. God purposes whatever happens in our life. And guess what? He will do it. He will do all of his pleasure. His counsel will stand. When God seems silent, he is yet working. Let us pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you are the greater King, you are greater than Ahasuerus. You have a greater and more glorious and more splendid kingdom 
than he does. I thank you, Lord, that you rule us in your kingdom better than he rules his subjects here in this book. We thank you, Lord, that you are the greater king, that you are the king of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, and that you have a glorious kingdom full of splendor. And, Lord, we are in that kingdom, and we are to live in light of your kingdom. And, Lord, I pray as we go through this week, as we go through the rest of this day and, and through the rest of this week, Lord, that we as believers see that your hand is always with us. When you seem silent, you are at work. The world, the flesh, and the devil may try to convince us that you are not there, that you're not at work, that you're asleep at the wheel. Lord, I'm reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 121 where he tells us that you never sleep nor slumber. That he who watches Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. That you watch us, Lord, by day and by night. And Lord, we thank you that though you may seem silent, that you are always there still and that you're working on our behalf to your glory. In Christ's name we pray and thank you. Amen.